This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. How far should we be able to go to get what we want? There are self-help books that are available that can give you advice on anything. Want to make a million dollars? There's a self-help book for that. Want to lose weight? Self-help. They'll encourage you. They'll inspire you. And all you have to do is follow their instructions, and you too, if you're lucky enough, because I'm sure there's small print somewhere, will get what it is that you want. You'll win. You'll achieve. You'll retire early. Here's a question that we've got to ask, though, because we've got a lot of stories that we can look at today, because as much as those self-help books are great and they're nice little ingredients to a recipe, you know, I can call up Wolfgang Puck and say, Hi, uh, Chef Wolfgang, can you help me out here? Can you send me a recipe for a good tortier? Sounds like a fancy name. And he will say, you know what? I can do that. I can send you a recipe for not just a good tortillere. I can send you a recipe for the best tortillere. And then I can take that recipe and I can hit the grocery store and I can buy whatever it is that goes into a tortillere, which is essentially some mashed up meat product, right? I'm sure it's more than that. And a flaky crust. I could go and I could get all the stuff. I could start it from the lard on up. And then I could serve it to you at the same time that Chef Wolfgang was reaching over and giving you the same recipe made by him. And you're going to take a bite of his, and it's going to be delicious. It's going to be, it's going to be one of the neatest things you've ever eaten. It will melt in your mouth. The crust will be so flaky. The flavors will marry together so beautifully. And you're going to try and cut into mine. First of all, it's probably going to be burnt because I don't cook a lot and I'm not sure about food times and things like that. And then when you get to the middle part, it's just not going to have the same flavor. I won't have known to put the pinch and the dash. I won't have known to extra fluff whatever it takes. I'll have screwed up the lard. It just won't be as good. But for people who fall into that particular path... You could look and say, yeah, I'm never going to make a tortillere that is as good as Chef Wolfgang Puck's. But I could go to a restaurant, get a tortillere, bring it home, and then try and pass it off to my family as if it was mine. Huh? Guys, I made a tortillere for dinner. This is delicious. You made this? There's no way you made this. I made this. There's no way you made this. This is good. You can't make alphagetti. I'm telling you, I made it. And I could hold to that lie as long as I wanted to. And eventually, because it doesn't really impact them that much, they would go, wow, you should cook more. But in actuality, I've cheated. I haven't done it right. I have what I want, in this case, which would be, what, affection for my cooking? I don't know what I'm going after here. A well-fed family? But I've lied. But I've, I've gone a different way on this. I've, I've kind of hit a gray area. Because, you know, I did drive to the restaurant. I did pay money for the tortillere. Yeah, it's just, it's, 
it's just a little detail that I'm I'm just, you know, not not being completely honest that I didn't really cook it. I I grabbed it from the person who gave it to me and I did not drop it. And I was able to get it into a secure vehicle and drive it home. I was able to heat it up and then bring it to the table. Should I not get some credit for this? And that's what I want to explore today. And we're going to explore it in a lot of ways. Not the tortier part, not the shelf Wolfgang Puck. But I want to explore getting what you want and how far people are willing to go and what they are willing to do and some of the tactics that they are using. And we're going to do it in a few different ways. We, of course, have what has become a much bigger story since the release of some documents going back to the municipal election and the races and eventual victories in Ward 10 by Paul Van Meerbergen and the race and eventual victory by Maureen Cassidy. But the the behind-the-scenes stuff that has gone on in this has become interesting in that election is just as good as a soap opera. Interesting. It's, It's kind of that way. And so I want to explore that a little bit because, you know, in this case, was anyone doing anything wrong? Well, yeah, kind of, sort of, yeah, yeah, maybe. But were they doing anything wrong? There may be some illegalities that come out of this, but they may be for other things. I can see a fraud sort of topic surfacing in all of this, but it it would be kind of unrelated to what the actual issue was. But what we had was an election race. What we had was obviously a partnership with... Paul Van Meerbergen and with Randy Warden and Blackridge Strategy. Uh, so there were there were there was a creation of websites. What went on? What was asked for? We're still trying to figure that all out. Of course, the websites targeted incumbents Maureen Cassidy and Virginia Ridley. Virginia Ridley lost her seat. Maureen Cassidy won her seat. And we had details on those websites that claimed Cassidy couldn't be trusted, uh, said that uh, she had the affair with Matt Brown, the former mayor, and then Virginia Ridley was targeted. She was called a colossal spendthrift. She was called greedy. Uh, It was brought up that she had brought her son to a lengthy budget meeting. So essentially, we have what amounts to attack ads, which is what we have a lot of times in U.S. politics and in federal politics. We have a lot of attack ads. Are they wrong? I wish they didn't work. They're wrong, yes, to an extent, because you should be extolling your own virtues instead of trying to destroy somebody else, but that's politics. You know, the the attack ads work because people are ignorant. That's the only reason they work. People don't pay attention. That's why attack ads work. They basically advertise to the uninformed. Ugh. I don't want to read about all these elections. No, I, I don't want to have to spend my time figuring out who to vote for. But I sure should vote because I'm told I have to vote. Yeah, but I, I don't want to listen to any of these people. I don't want to take the time to read what they're saying, what they say they're going to bring, and try and figure out who is the most honest, who has the best ideas, who has the personality, the vim, and the vigor to carry them out. I don't want to do that. So, I'll just listen to this attack ad. Ooh, colossal spendthrift. 
Greedy. Bringing her son to a lengthy budget meeting. Hmm. And that's kind of how things go. And in this case, they weren't attack ads necessarily. There were, there were websites. But ultimately, did someone get what they wanted? Well, you could argue that of the people who have shown to have been targeted, one won and one lost. So one person got what they wanted, it would appear. And now we've got all kinds of other things coming out of it. Uh, one thing to pay attention to, and Craig Needles was talking about this earlier today, but one of the things to pay attention to is the document that I, I just, I wonder about this document. This document that appeared to be, according to a global news report, appeared to be an invoice from Blackridge Strategy to Paul Van Meerbergen that described Services that the firm was hired to perform as, quote, attack ads against Virginia Ridley. Would an invoice have that? I mean, help me out. I don't write a lot of invoices. Would an invoice say attack ads? I have trouble believing that that's what it would say. So I I find that very interesting. But in the how to get what you want... Somebody may have been able to get what they want, how to get things done. How much gray area is that? We are also going to talk in about 25 minutes from now about the sign stealing of the Houston Astros, who won a World Series, and eventually the Boston Red Sox. And they have a a similar thread between the two teams who hasn't really been punished yet, but probably will be. The Houston Astros were punished in a big way. They were stealing signs. Stealing signs in baseball goes back a long way. But this is how they were stealing signs. So is it okay to steal signs if you're standing at second base and you can watch the catcher and figure out, oh, wait, he held down number two and then threw a curveball. That must mean number two is a curveball when it's flashed the third sign. Yeah, I figured that out. So is that okay? Whereby putting a camera on a catcher and filming that catcher and then, I don't know, using some video algorithmic whatever to figure out, is that, is that what we're looking at? That's not okay? We can't film the catcher and, and still figure it out and then use a garbage can to bang out what signs are coming so that the batter can know what's on the way? That, that's not okay? Uh, yeah, where do we draw the line there? So that's something else we'll talk about. And the third instance that I want to talk about is in getting what you want. We continue to have these rotating strikes or these one-day strikes by teachers. We've had them in the public board. Now we're going to have them with the Catholic board. Uh, yesterday we had a demonstration on the 401, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. They need a better way of doing things. These demonstrations, these protests, these one-day strikes, this is old. No one cares. I mean, we even had to have the members of the indigenous community who were on the 401 and were blocking three lanes of traffic and slowing things down to draw attention to something the federal government said they were going to do. They had to say, yeah, don't take your anger out on us, meaning they've been receiving anger. Take your anger that is directed at us and directed to the federal government. People are not doing that. People are looking at you and what you did, and they're angry about that. So you need to find a better way. And the one-day strike by teachers, this is old union tactics. This is not going to do what you want. This is not getting people riled up, because people don't care enough anymore. 
It doesn't affect their outstretched reach. What you need to do is find someone within government, lobby that person, and have that person be a champion of your cause. But you know what? That's way more work than a one-day strike or a protest on the 401. So people won't do it. But that's what you have to do. You have to find a champion for your cause. You have to find somebody within the Ford government, not the people at the bargaining table. You have to find somebody else who says, you know, that's right. I like what you're saying. You're right. I'm going to take this and I'm going to bring it up in government. I'm going to bring it up in a caucus meeting. I'm going to be your champion. That's what you need. Go find that. Stop striking. Go find that. Because that's how you're going to get what you want. But instead, people are doing it by way of protest. I don't think that's going to work. Just like I don't think it's fair that the Houston Astros are cheating to win the World Series. Just like I don't think it's fair that someone is going to use attack ads to try and win a seat in government. But it's getting what you want. And there's a lot of gray areas. Cheating. Sometimes it's nice and black and white. You there with your grade three paper that exactly matches your friend's paper beside you. Uh, you, you might have cheated off him. Uh, I want to talk to you guys and you can usually get an admission of guilt pretty quickly from an eight year old. Yeah, I was looking. I didn't do my homework. So he gave me the answers. And both of them, what what do you get when you're eight? I don't even think you can get a detention when you're eight, can you? But cheating can sometimes move into some gray areas. See, there's this thing called skill. And it's it's a skill in stealing signs. Believe it or not, baseball has prided itself on those individuals who could stand at second base and watch the catcher and figure out what the signs were and then somehow relay that or know the next time up that, you know, when the pitcher does this or, you know, when he shakes his head twice, he's probably going to throw the change up. That was considered to be, you know, that's that's good baseball. But now, now that we've got electronics in this and Apple watches and the banging of garbage cans, we seem to have a big issue on our hands. And yesterday, enormous punishment was brought down upon the heads of the Houston Astros and ultimately led to the dismissal of a manager, a general manager, the forfeiture of draft picks, the fine in the millions that they will have to pay. But in baseball, you're trying to win. The Astros won. No one is taking away their World Series crown. We're going to hear more about the Boston Red Sox, who are accused of having maybe cheated a little bit the year they won the World Series in 2018, but no one's threatening to take that World Series away. So how do we interpret this? How widespread is this? Is the punishment even fitting of the crime? Is there even a crime here? Let's sort out all of these things and more as we welcome my good buddy Greg Brady to the show from AM640 Toronto. Greg, we can start in so many different places here, but why don't we just look at the fact that Major League Baseball has dropped a a bit of a hammer on the Houston Astros, who went on to win the World Series. We have discussion about the Boston Red Sox, who mm, did some untoward things, it looks like, and then went on to win the World Series. Are we looking at them picking on the the big fish here to to maybe send a message? 
I think there's a message being sent. By the way, I can assure you there's detention for eight-year-olds. For eight-year-olds? Uh, once, once. I, I think seven is where it's, I really do think seven. Depending on his early birthdays is probably where it starts. I'm, I'm living proof uh, that uh, you can be held in for a recess or two in uh, first or second grade. Yeah, it's a strange one. I, I think the, the whole baseball world was floored by the length of the suspensions. But nobody likes a slap on the wrist. Nobody liked it in the NFL when Bill Belichick and the Patriots just never seemed to get, uh, you know, get put over, you know, raked over the coals. And, and like, I, Bill Belichick's never sat a game. Tom Brady... They get for four games for the inflation slash deflation of footballs in the AFC Championship game, and obviously that wasn't enough for some people and too much for others. But this blew my mind yesterday. I find it hard to believe that the the system they were using, um, which was banging on a garbage can, they, like for specific pitches, there'd be I don't know one bang for a fastball. If you didn't hear anything, expect something off speed. I can't imagine a veteran pitcher was out on that mound for seven innings for two and a half hours when his pitch count gets up around 110, not noticing a routine uh, in the games in Houston. So the punishment's massive, but I think you've asked some good questions about the legacy it leaves for baseball. Don't we make the obvious assumption that they're not the first team to potentially do this? Um, even the Blue Jays were accused of stealing signs when they were hitting a lot of home runs and during those Bautista and Edwin glory years in, in 2013 around 2014 there was supposedly a man in a white suit he was dressed all in white who would relay the signals um for uh for the blue jays hitters so there's there's a lot of fallout from this i don't think it was a good day for baseball either because i think we're going to be very suspicious we think we got steroids out of the game for the most part but we've got other elements of cheating and in some ways this is worse yeah this is very it feels very similar and i keep wondering do we take a big asterisk and put it beside the Houston Astros World Series win and maybe another asterisk for the Boston Red Sox cuz baseball seemed to think oh that'll solve everything you know yeah Barry Bonds is still playing we know he was using steroids but don't worry we're going to put an asterisk beside his record that'll that'll show everyone well, it's there for me, and I, I, I think you, you nailed it in that we've never really done this for a team, per se, no matter how many so-called steroid offenders were on the team. You win a, you win a World Series in Oakland, and they probably should have won more than just the one. They win three straight annual crowns between 88 and 90. They have the Gibson home run, and the Dodgers somehow beat them in 88. They, they inexplicably, in our first year of college, get swept by the Cincinnati Reds. Like, that's not a, that was not a memorable stack team outside of Barry Larkin and Eric Davis, a couple good players. Um, but Oakland's got Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco. And we never talk about the 89 A's and say, does that have an asterisk? Does that feel? These are, these are the two of the most obvious uh, performance-enhancing drug cheats in baseball history. Canseco told you he was in a book, and everybody he named in the book has either been caught or has fallen under some you know form of scrutiny, and not one Major League Baseball player I remember thinking at this time, uh, at the time, like not one major league baseball player was named as being a drug user sued Canseco. I know I would if someone accused me of that, and I didn't do it, or accused me of anything dramatically publicly, and I didn't do it. I'm calling my lawyer right away. No one did. So it really says something here that the Astros. You asked that question about the Astros and the Astros, but but let's juxtapose this and talk about the individual players. Where does that leave? Guys that who I think might be destined for the Hall of Fame, Carlos Correa, Jose Altuve, really likable guys like George Springer and Alex Bregman. You have a couple vets that, guys, we're not doing this. They probably don't do it. So this seems to be an incredibly systemic approach by the club. And even the pitchers are, are in on it because it was a pitcher, Mike Fires, who was on the team back in 2017. 
that ratted them out about a year and a half ago. So Justin Verlander is culpable. Um, Lance McCullers is culpable. Zach Greinke is probably culpable. It, there's a lot of people that have that have. They're going to have answers to have to give when the Astros assemble for spring training in a couple months. I wouldn't want to be Carlos Beltran, the new manager of the Mets, because he was on that team and apparently involved in some way, and now he's got the New York media all over him. We're talking with Greg Brady from Global News Radio AM640 in Toronto about cheating in baseball. And Greg, let me ask you this. How, how much do you suspect this is... This is more than just the Astros and the Red Sox. They're the ones who, yes, have been caught. They're the ones who have been reported upon. But, you know, we've got so much technology now. It's it's easy to take a camera and zoom in on the catcher's free hand and kind of record that for an entire game and maybe make use of that footage. We've got so many ways to the Apple Watch that could show, okay, well, here, let's. this is what's coming or this is what's going. How widespread do you feel this might be? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's systemic. I'm sure there are players really hoping um, that they're, they aren't exposed, and, and whether it's whether they won a World Series or just had a great career that were that, that have been you know benefiting at least in terms of hitting from uh, pitchers and, and the signals that they use. And when we talk about this, you know, you, you call enough hockey games a year. I'm at enough sporting events. I'm sure that all the listeners can relate. I don't know when it started was, but every conversation between coaches and, and other coaches, coaches and players, managers and players, you started covering your mouth. You'd hide a piece of paper. The, the coaches now in the NHL, the OHL, they're hiding. They're, they're, they, don't, they do not want their rips, lips read. They do not want that under any circumstance. I'll go to college football games. I try to take my family every year, and we go to Ann Arbor to see the Wolverines play. They, the signals on the sidelines, Mike, you've seen them on TV. They're whole, you got five different assistant coaches holding up different pictures. <laughs> um, some are emojis. Some are pictures of the Eiffel Tower. Some are maps. And they're, they, all they're trying to do, it's, it's an absolute game. We have really upped the ante in terms of trying to dissuade the other team from thinking they can cheat, um, try to fool them from, from catching our tendencies. So it's amazing that baseball hasn't moved forward. They, they get accused of being, you know, sort of the dinosaur of the four major sports. Five, if you count soccer, which has a lot more innovation and I think has moved quickly with the times to become less quote-unquote boring. And I don't know why we're not using a, a helmet to situation with pitchers and catchers, where the pitcher is mic'd only to the catcher, and they can talk to each other. We've got that with quarterbacks and, and the leader of the defense in the NFL, and we've had that for 20 years now. I just I'm shocked that we we still have these third base and first base signals and pitcher catcher signals because it's the easiest thing in the world with all our technology and cameras to track them down, figure out what they mean. You better be switching them every game if you want them to work. Yeah, baseball seems to love those those elements that they feel are always going to be there, but in a way, they're elements that yeah, they're always there, but people are manipulating them because they've always been there. You guys, you guys have to move on. They've always been there, and. It's a tricky thing to track down, but once obviously the video and what the Astros were doing, especially something uh, a method so primitive of letting you know the Apple Watch thing, which you mentioned for the Red Sox, is going to be incredibly intriguing. We're also going to get you know I mentioned the legacies for guys who are very very good players for the Astros and maybe a couple destined Hall of Famers. Um, they, look, the pitchers, I say they're culpable, but obviously the pitchers for the Astros, you know, are, are it, half the game they're innocent bystanders. We really. Don't think the Astros have come up with any method um, or the Red Sox under Alex Cora that they can, 
you know, there's no way you can really manipulate hitter signals like you can the signals between a pitcher and catcher. What I think is going to be fascinating is this is still going to be a really good team for the next year or two. You know, flip of a coin, they win Game 7, and they're they're two-time World Series champions in the last three years. But we're going to find out the real value of a general manager and manager because both those guys were fired yesterday by the Astros. And we're also going to find out their value to another club because – We've seen it. You know, Araldus Chapman, domestic abuse, very famously here in Canada with Roberto Osuna hopping right from the Jays to a World Series champion in Houston after his domestic abuse charges. I don't think these guys are going to have trouble finding another job. I, I, you know, Hinch is thought to be one of the best managers in the sport. I find it really tough to believe. And this seems like a plot orchestrated by the players that the manager maybe could have looked the other way once in a while. But, uh, again, Tony La Russa kept working um, with Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco. Tony La is not labeled as any sort of cheater whatsoever. He just either had his head in the sand or he didn't care. And many other managers can claim the same in the steroid. Anybody who's ever managed Barry Bonds or Alex Rodriguez, and Rafael Palmero and Sammy Sosa, they have to claim the same. Yeah. Well, another name is Alex Cora, who apparently was involved in Houston and who knows, may have even come up with the garbage can idea where they banged on the garbage can. Then he goes to Boston. Just a little while ago, he was known as a back-to-back World Series winner. Now all of a sudden people are saying, hey, the Red Sox should really fire him before his stuff comes out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's tough to it's tough to see how the Red Sox, he's, even if he sits a year. And the, and the hitch firing really did surprise me because the Astros had that incident with a female reporter and the assistant general manager, and you thought, okay, there's some issue with the culture there. And Major League Baseball is on to it. I don't think the, I don't think the suspensions yesterday are, are so related to that, but it was definitely laid out by the commissioner, Rob Manford, that the Astros have a bit of a reputation, a bit of a culture problem. So maybe the GM, Jeff Lunau, was on his way out. But for Hinch, uh, that's that's real. I really thought they'd wait that out and and use somebody on the interim. And he's young enough. He, this isn't an older guy in his mid sixties. I thought he'd be right back in there in twenty twenty one. I'm sure he'll be managing another club. But yeah, the question is, the Red Sox have struggled to find that consistent manager really ever since Terry Francona left. Right, they won the World Series with former Blue Jays manager John Farrell. But whatever he did after that wasn't good enough either. So it looks like they finally have somebody they really think connects with all the players and Alex Cora. I'd be a bit surprised if they took the same tactic as the Astros and ended up firing Cora, even if he's going to be suspended for an entire year, Mike. I think he probably skates by with a big reprimand from the team saying we can't have any of that here with the Red Sox. But you never know. It's baseball. Lots of surprises. Absolutely. Greg, thank you for capping off all of these surprises and giving us a lot of things to think about. We'll talk soon. Got it, Mike. That is Greg Brady from AM640 in Toronto on Global News Radio. Tires don't break down as easily as you might think, and it's time to talk a little bit more about that. Simply because we would think, you know, if you're going to recycle something, tires, seriously, that's that's not a problem at all, right? Well, actually, it is a big problem, and it is certainly a concern And we'll figure out exactly what that concern is and how one finding may have changed all of that. 
So get yourself set because here is a conversation with Dr. Michael Brook. He's the lead researcher and part of the Department of Chemistry and Chemical Biology at McMaster University. And we talked with Dr. Brook about owning a car because if you own a car, you ride around on tires a lot. Eventually they wear out. They need to be replaced. It's not the most fun thing to buy. It's not cheap. But good tires are a big deal, only they are hard to recycle. But as Dr. Brook points out, that could be changing. Well, I think one of the things, you know, when I when I was a young guy, tires lasted, you know, 10 or 20,000 miles in those days, not kilometers. And now we expect to get 100,000 kilometers out of a tire. Part of that is they've been engineered extremely well. But the downside, as you indicated, is once, you know, once you've stopped using them on your car, you've spent all that money, do we just throw them into the into the garbage? Hopefully not. And there are some uses out there, but they're so well made. They're so they have so much structural integrity. It's just hard to break them down. <laughs> I, I just get a kick out of that. that. We're trying to do something better in one side of life, and then the other side. There's it's done so well that it's kind of hindering the other side of things, and that's kind of where you guys come in, which is great. So you're saying that regular tires don't break down very easily. So does that limit maybe the the recyclable material that comes from them? Absolutely. I mean, the best processes to date actually are to grind them up and use them in, you know, playground mats or some cement companies use them as fuel. They just burn them, another source of petroleum. And there are some other processes that are out there to try and it's called pyrolysis, a kind of a gentle heating to convert them back into diesel. But it's not what we think of when we talk about reuse, recycle, you know, those kinds of sustainability goals don't work well with tires because they're just too stable, actually. In normal circumstances. We're talking with Dr. Michael Brook, who is a lead author of a study that we're going to get to in seconds here. And he's also with the Department of Chemistry and Chemical Biology at McMaster University. So when we aren't breaking down tires, they wind up usually in piles. And every once in a while, we'll hear about a news story that says, "Uh oh, there's a tire fire. So obviously, we've got issues in terms of storage. We don't want tire fires, do we? Well, you know, I, I live in Hamilton and Hagersville 30 years ago. There were 14 million tires that burned. I don't know if you remember the black sooty smoke, but for for 17 days and just before Christmas in Minto, New Brunswick, another million tires caught on fire. Those those fires are very hot. They're very dirty. It, there's got to be something better to do. At least that's kind of what one would like to think. We can take advantage of what is a valuable product. I just bought new tires for my car. I know what you're talking about. A valuable product and do something better with them than either the risk to the environment or these sort of lower-grade recycling opportunities that currently exist. Well, then let's get to your research. What exactly have you found a way to do? Well, we've been working a lot on on silicone chemistry. That's what my normal work involves. And we discovered a reaction that we were using to make well-defined silicones for certain applications also can be applied to breaking the sulfur-sulfur bonds that are used to make rubber in the first place. And what's surprising, I guess, to us is that we were able to find ways to do this that chemically makes sense, that part's okay, but also mechanically makes sense. Lots of times you have a, a process that works extremely well on model compounds in a clean system. Rubber tires are incredibly complicated for reasons we've already articulated, and what was really nice about this one, we didn't anticipate it, is that the same process we use could be done on a very complicated rubber tire 
still under mild conditions. So in other words, you're able to break down the tire that is so well constructed in the first place. How did you kind of come across this? Well, you know, I've, I've, lots of people have interviewed scientists and they talk about the Eureka moment. Now, that wasn't quite how it, it happened. We've been using this reaction for, for several years now. And if you think about this, it's a hammer. And we were looking for nails, you know, something to hammer it in. Could we apply the technology that we had so much success with in one area to a different area? And it turned out the answer was yes, that the reactions designed to do silicones, at least that's how we've been using them, also worked really well to break sulfur-sulfur bonds. And if you break those bonds, can we picture what it kind of looks like? Are you left with a whole bunch of goo, or what comes That's out? A, what, a, what a great question. The analogy I've been using is a fishing net. Everybody knows what a fishing net is like. If you try and pull one end of the net, you pull the other end of the net, too. And what the chemistry does is, I've used the term molecular scissors, it goes and chops up all the, all the, the sulfur bonds. That leaves you not with a net but a bunch of ropes, and they're just much more manageable. Once you have those ropes, they will dissolve. Therefore, you can filter away the steel belt, the polyester cord, other fillers and other stuff that's sitting inside the tire. So you now isolate the stuff that has value from the stuff that's much more difficult to work with, those things that actually made the tire hard to hard to break down in the first place. Amazing. Dr. Michael Brook joining us. He is a lead author in research that shows tires that are made so well that they don't break down really at all and therefore are kind of left in big heaps. We don't want tire fires. That's not a great thing to have burning in any way. But this is a new way of dealing with tires that can break down even those tough sulfur-sulfur compounds. And Dr. Brooke is with the Department of Chemistry and Chemical Biology at McMaster University. So once you have taken this apart, what can you make from it? Well, that's, of course, a really great question. And one of the first things we did was, it sounds kind of silly, we made new tires, but for a kid's toy. We are not doing this yet on, on gigantic scales, but we took an old Tonka truck that I had and and took the tire off, made a mold, and then using the material we isolated from a real tire, we recross-linked them, we made them back into rubber tires. And one of the nice things was not only could we take that valuable polymer oil and make a new tire, but the stuff that we saw as junk, all of that black material that we filtered off, we could put some of that back into the material and act, uh, let it act as a reinforcing agent. So we're able to take the valuable material in that tire and repurpose it, in this case, for a kid's car tire. But nevertheless, it proves the point that the, the value that's in the original tire can be uh, used a second time. So what we're trying to do now is find how well we can do that. Can we improve the process and its efficiency? And with the materials we make, can we find other kinds of applications, be they in tires or other rubber materials, where, where this material could be uh, advantageous? And from there, do you go to commercial applications, things like that? Right now, you're, you're kind of still at the research phase. We are still at the research phase. And one of the, one of the questions, of course, that companies ask is, is what is it going to cost? And the catalyst that we use which works extremely well on model compounds, uh, you need quite a bit of it in this process. So our current research right now is to take the existing process and to make it more price manageable, either by finding better ways to recover that catalyst or to, in the very first instance, use develop the process a bit more so we don't need quite so much of it. So it's not commercial yet, but I think it's a different direction than other people have 
uh, used to, to breaking down tires, which I would really like to turn into a commercial process. Dr. Brooke, congratulations on what you have discovered. Best of luck in doing exactly what you hope to do. Thanks for spending some time with us. Thank you very much for your interest. That is Dr. Michael Brook, lead researcher and part of the Department of Chemistry and Chemical Biology at McMaster. They're just playing around with stuff, and all of a sudden they went, hey, wait a minute, this might work. And believe it or not, breaking down tires, see, I always like when I hear stories about things that are made to last, because nothing really is made to last anymore. And this is not just, uh, oh, wow, here we are in the 2000s. My father-in-law used to tell the story of working at a place at Automatic Electric. And he was actually forced, in a way, to go back to school and ended up with a Ph.D. and ended up with quite a life. But he did that because Automatic Electric gave him a phone and said, hey, take this phone. I want it to break after it gets answered 4,000 times. And he kind of went, you want it to do what? Yeah, we want somebody to pick up this phone 4,000 times And as soon as you hit the 4,000th time, we want it to break so that they have to buy a new phone. And he thought, this is not the world I want to work in. This is not what I want to figure out. I want to do things that help, not hurt. So he left. But we have very few things in our life that are made to last, it seems. Tires are one of them, made so well that they don't really break down. And now this process may actually help that to happen. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3 